Welcome to the Restoration Church Podcast. To learn more about our church, give, share a prayer request, or access our weekly worship guide, visit us at www.restorationlex.com slash this week. As we begin today, one of the stranger things um, I've had to navigate as I've walked through ministry and now, gosh, how many, the math is hard, 18 years, um, is when I'm in social situations and then I get outed as a pastor. I always hate when I'm going out to lunch with you guys or something like that, or we're out at a, a place getting drinks or something, and they're like, this is my pastor, and see the countenance of people just immediately change to uh, standoffishness. We, we, we were in uh, Florida this past uh, fall and Labor Day weekend and got to go down there, and we got a coupon for an hour boat ride, which I was very nervous about, um, but we did it, and we went out on the ocean. But as we got up there, it's a small boat, so we can only share this boat with one other couple, this older couple. We get up there, and we're meeting them, and of course, my wife is much more talkative and, and, and outgoing than I am, and she starts talking to this older couple, and she says, my husband, he's a pastor, and she immediately, like, her posture went up, she hid her cocktail behind her, and she did the sign of a cross, and I said, that's wrong, wrong tradition, but we'll go there, don't hide the cocktail, it's fine, and we got to know them a little, got to know their story, and it became something where they were able to feel like they could be themselves around us, but I've had that happen more times than I can think of, and I would imagine, too, for you in your job or in your school, whatever situation you've been in, there's times when the knowledge of you being a Christian could possibly change the social dynamic because of the situation you are in, and it's, it makes me sad. It's increasingly happening. It's increasingly something that when you're in the presence of Christians, sometimes we have earned a reputation that merits uh, people changing their posture around us. Sometimes it is. I recently heard a friend tell me that their kids want nothing to do with the church because they have only known the church as being associated with a very combative, combative uh, political ideology. So they have no interest whatsoever in the church, no matter the beliefs or practices, because of what is associated with. More and more, when people hear church, uh, when they hear Christian, it's not a response that is always Welcome. And I want to contrast that today with our passage in Luke chapter 15. I wanted to take the next three weeks as we move into our six-year anniversary next week, which is wild, five years in this building, which again is wild, and talk about some vision for us moving forward. This is what we're looking at in Luke chapter 15. It's one of the most famous chapters in the scriptures, and it deals with the, the reputation of Jesus in the world around him. Look with me here in verse one on the screen. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all, all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now we talked about this before, tax collectors. Tax collectors in Jesus's time, they represented the very height of corruption. The Romans, they would lease out the opportunity to collect taxes to the highest bidder and then on top of that, you were allowed to just kind of take as much as you wanted on top of that as well. So this was authorizing basically corruption. You take a little surcharge on top of what you're already taking for the Roman government, meaning this was co coercion. It meant violence if necessary. Anything to extract as much money as possible from the people. These were enemies of their own people. 
Now step outside the story for a minute and think about the corruption. Think about someone that you would identify in our modern world as someone corrupt, taking advantage of those who do not have much. That's who Jesus is eating with. I would venture to guess you'd probably be kind of mad too. And then there's the sinners. I'm talking, of course, about you. No, I'm just kidding. I'm talking about, this is a catch-all phrase for men and women who kind of stand outside, lack obedience to the scriptures, tradition, piety, that left them, for whatever reason, on the outside looking in. This is who Jesus is sharing a table with. To the tax collectors and the Pharisees, what they saw the tax collectors as sharing priorities when you eat with someone. Table fellowship means you condone what they do and how they live. You have an excuse. You have excused their behavior as you share a meal with them. One of the rabbinical teachings that you see later on in the tradition says, let a man associate with the wicked, let not a man associate with the wicked, even to bring him near to the law. The Pharisees did not believe in friendship evangelism. They did not believe that you should just hang out with those bad people and hopefully they would catch Christianity on top of it. They thought that if you got near to these people, they would be corrupted themselves. So it's better preserve our ideological and religious and moral purity and stay away from those people altogether to keep our distance. But then there's, there's Jesus. All the wrong people were drawn to Jesus. And yet we'd agree that Jesus is, he's the son of God, the sinless son of God, God in flesh. And this in no way diminishes the holiness of Jesus. It did not solely his obedience and connection to the Father. No one was more holy than Jesus, and yet no one was more welcoming. Have you ever thought about that paradox? That Jesus was the embodiment of holiness, wholeness, and yet in his holiness, it was all the wrong people, all the unholy, who were most drawn to him. Now, does this mean that Jesus condones collecting taxes and exploiting the people of Israel? No. Does it mean when he's sharing a meal with a prostitute that he's fine with this sexual exploitation that's victimizing her the way it is? Not at all, but radically, Jesus chose to meet them in those spaces of brokenness where this vulnerability and change is actually possible. And that's what makes meals so significant. To share a meal, at best, is how we learn to be fully present with others. It's why we have prioritized this past year and this coming year eating lots of food. And God's people said, yes, because sitting around the table gives us space where we might not have in a room like this. If this is all we experience, sitting around a table gives us the opportunity to slow down, to be present, and to be with people who are on the outside looking in. This is how people were welcomed into the kingdom through Jesus, through presence, through the simplest of ways. This was Jesus' ministry strategy. More than anything else was presence. He's called Emmanuel. What's Emmanuel mean? God with us. And God with us literally, truly means God with 
us, present to us, present where we are, present as we actually are. Jesus showed that over and over again, it wasn't the synagogue or the halls of power that centered his ministry. It was the table with the food and the wine. Tim Chester writes that Jesus didn't run projects, establish ministries, create programs, or put on events. He ate meals. Some have said that in the Gospels, you see Jesus either going to a meal, coming to a meal, coming from a meal, or at a meal. He is constantly eating. I also heard one commentator say that it's very possible that Jesus had a double chin because he's always eating because that's where you meet people, where they actually are. Think about how when you sit at a table with people you love, it gives you the opportunity to enter into the stories and struggles that you would not have otherwise been able to do. At our best around the table, we are vulnerable. At our best, the struggles that we have failed to open to others become seen and known and loved. We are met where we are and not where we should be. That was the ministry strategy of Jesus. All of this flies in the face of those who were committed to maintaining this ideological purity, this religious purity apart from people. And as they grumbled at Jesus, as the Pharisees and the teachers of law began to grumble about this, Jesus tells three stories, three famous stories. We're just focusing on one today. The first one, he continues, it says, then Jesus told them this parable. Now suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he leave the 99 in the open country to go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And, and when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now hear me, both then and now, 100 sheep is a significant investment. Does anyone in here own any sheep? No, I didn't think so. I just wanted to throw it out there just in case. Sheep, it's a lot, huh? Kids, yeah, I guess kids do count as sheep. I do not want 100 kids, though. That would be worse. So 100 sheep, that's a significant investment. Jesus' parable, he's talking about leaving 99% of the investment behind in the open country, literally here in the Greek, the desert, to go after the one. And a lot of times we've heard this parable presented as, as sort of making the 99 and the one against one another. It's like Jesus is devaluing the 99 in order to love the one. But I don't think that's what's happening here. In valuing one, Jesus isn't devaluing the other. Some, some commentators have actually pointed out that shepherds, they worked in teams, and it's likely that the 99 would have still been cared for, had still been taken care of. What it means then is the job is not finished after grazing in the open country until everyone has been brought home. What is being said is that something I think is deeply profound and important here, that God is not satisfied to cut his losses with people. That no one is expendable in the kingdom of God. The job is not done according to Jesus until all 100, until all people are safe at home. And guess what? That's not just good news to the one who's lost. That's good news to the 99 as well. 
Kenneth Bailey, he writes this. He says, does the lost individual matter or are the people alone important? Indeed, it is the shepherd's willingness to go after the one that gives the 99 their real security. If the one is sacrificed in the name of the larger group, then each individual in the group is insecure, knowing that he or she is of little value. If lost, he or she will be left to die. When the shepherd pays a high price to find the one, he thereby offers the profoundest security to the many. I hope you hear that, that you are not just a number to God, that you are known and loved where you are as you are, and the good shepherd is not willing to leave you behind any more than he's willing to leave anybody that's not in this room behind as well. You are known and loved and valued. He is pursuing you and your wandering and your lostness because the job is not done, according to Jesus, until everyone's been brought home, until everyone has been made safe. It's true for you. It's true for me, and it's true for those who stand on the outside looking in and those who are unaware of their lostness, whether by their religion or by their rebellion. In both cases, the good shepherd is after us. He is wanting to bring us home. But notice, though, the the end result here, what we see is celebration. This last verse is one of, I think, the more sobering and surprising verses in the whole of Scripture. Have you ever stopped to ask yourself, what does God celebrate. What does God celebrate? Jesus makes it clear. What, is, what, is it, what garners a celebration in heaven? Does, does heaven erupt in applause when our candidate is elected to office? No. Is it when a certain number of people begin to attend our churches? No. Is it when we have reached a, a, a height, a level of a religious knowledge? No. Is it when we get the people around us in the world to behave and think and act and vote like us? No. According to Jesus, it's none of these things. However valuable they may be, what has heaven erupting in applause is when everybody's brought home. It's when the lost is found. It's when no one is expendable. And when the 99 begin to understand that no one is expendable as well. The real celebrations in the kingdom of God are coming as God sees the lost being found. Those who are wandering through the wilderness, they're finally being brought and called home. Now, the audience of Jesus' parable, the Pharisees and the teachers of law, must have had their jaws at this point hitting the floor as they hear these words. Because the problem with the Pharisees, the problem with the teachers of the law, wasn't just their exclusion of these people. It wasn't just their judgment. The problem for them, and often the problem for us, is that they could not see that they were just as lost as those they excluded. Just as wandering as those they tried to leave out. Jesus longs to rescue and bring safely home both the religious and the non-religious. Those who are staying home just as much as those who are lost and far away. You know where you find a lot of lost people? In the church. They're singing songs. They're serving. They're giving. They are fully satisfied in their own rightness. They're fully focused on their own importance. They're unaware that the God that they're speaking about and singing to is right there, waiting to bring them home, waiting to give them grace that they are often unaware that they actually need. 
Now, are there lost sheep out there? Yes, of course. But don't be surprised to find them right here sitting in the seats with you. Don't be surprised if you wake up to the fact that maybe it's you. Jesus is still saving Christians. Jesus is still saving churches. And it's because of this that I remain and continue to be deeply hopeful for the church. Because I know that God is just not out there with the one and saving the one he's learning. He's teaching the 99 to be saved as well, I believe. As we enter our sixth year as a church, I really sense the Holy Spirit prompting around something what it means to be a place or a people together that know how to welcome people home. Like how we as a community learn to be the welcoming presence of God, to be the kingdom of God welcoming others. And this is not just a service. This is around tables. It's around the way we serve. It's in everything we do. How do we become a more welcoming church I think for us, it's not just asking what God celebrates. It's also asking, do we seek what God seeks? Do we actually celebrate what God celebrates? And the last, you know, let's be honest, these last couple of years have been really difficult. And most of the time, what the difficulty was rooted in was it's hard to be present with one another, right? Literally sometimes. And then when we can be in the same room together, it's still hard to be present to one another, present to one another's stories, present to the people who are walking in these doors for the first time. We weren't able to meet in person as a whole family for 57 weeks straight. And then when we came back, there were masks and, and all sorts of things. We had plexiglass shields in front of people up here. I mean, it looked awful up here. <laughs> it was a mess. But we were doing this not only just to keep you safe and work with the lyric and all this, but in that process, we knew we were doing what we could at the very best we could to be present to one another because we valued that. And we're just now, I believe, learning and stepping into what it means to be present in the days ahead. Be present to one another, and not just present to the people who are in the room right now, but present to the people we believe will come and be connected and experience the loving presence of Jesus. As a church, we want to be known for our, the welcoming presence of God, to be known that when people come and are around us, whether in a situation like this, in a service, or whether we're serving in the community, or whether we're sitting around tables in homes, that when people enter into relationship with people in restoration, they feel and sense God's welcome in and through our lives. And so I want to close today by talking about what this means for us spiritually and what it means for us practically as well. I think it starts with the kind of people I believe that we're becoming together. As disciples of Jesus, we understand that he's not just the means of our ministry. He's not just the power. He's the model of it. And so if Jesus's ministry is marked by presence with others, then so should ours as well, right? If we look at the ministry of Jesus and see his primary strategy was being with people, being present to other stories, that should shape how we move and act 
as a church. We should be known for our commitment as followers of Jesus to truly be present with other people. And I also believe within this that it does not mean that when we disagree with others that we can't be present in love with them, right? This is incredibly important as reconcilers as we move into a very, very contentious world. We are radical in that we will sit around and be present to people with whom we disagree just like Jesus does because we believe that compassion, it doesn't compromise what we believe. It actually clarifies it. Being willing to listen and sit across the table and be present to people who are unlike us, who don't live and think and vote and look like us, is how we show Jesus in the presence that we offer others. Meaning our ability to be able to slow down and to listen and to make ourselves present to these stories and the struggles that we see, not only for people in this room, but those outside where we are, is central to how we understand our calling as a church. Let's talk about this practically. When we talk about being a welcoming and hospitable church, I want to make something really abundantly clear. This is not marketing. I heard one time a pastor refer to their hospitality team as customer care, and I threw up in my mouth. The language of business in church is toxic. We can learn from the business world, of course, but turning people into customers and hospitality into just means to get people into a room is not the ministry of Jesus. But it doesn't mean that we can grow in welcoming others. We're not inviting people into a bait-and-switch ministry that measures our success by nickels and noses, by how many people we can get into a room like this. Not that that's not important, but that is not what welcoming is for. Welcoming us so people can be seen and heard and loved and can be in the presence of God with one another. So we're being, we begin asking, what would it look like to have a team that across everything we do, we decide to be welcoming? And that's where the welcome wagon came in. There's the welcome wagon. That's what we're picking you up in. So the news today is that we spent half the church budget on a 1985 station. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I wish. I wish. That would be so fun. Now, the welcome wagon, the welcome wagon is to build this team of people who, who see their calling as joyfully welcoming people into the presence of God with us to put a priority on how we welcome people, not from a place of welcome in a marketing scheme, but you belong. You can be here and be loved in the presence of Jesus with others. This is in part already happening. Ashley and Emily have done a great job over the past year of providing these pop-up parties and family meals. Hasn't that been awesome over the past year to just have these incredible meals that we share together, the chili cook-off, which was won by Jay Pennington, way to go, and these other, other things that we're doing. And we, I want you to know, as we move into 2023, that's not going away. That's continuing. We have our next three together that we're moving forward towards. The next one is February 12th, and it is going to be a chicken wing cook-off on Super Bowl Sunday. Who's excited about that? So if you make chicken wings, 
get, get that smoker or whatever ready. Um, uh, uh, Troy Gray, if you're listening, I hope you hear, hear that too, because I know he's not here, but I know he's going to be ready for that. I'm very, very excited about it. I ordered a chicken trophy just for this, so somebody gets a chicken trophy when they win the chicken wing competition, and it's just to have fun and connect and be able to have a moment to be present with one another. We have fun and joy around the table with these opportunities. February 12th, when that's happening, I think that's going to be awesome. But there's a couple of other ways I want to see that expand. First of all, on Sunday mornings, it's intimidating enough to walk into a very bright room with a bunch of folding chairs when a lot of people who've been a part of a church before have been in dark rooms and it's quiet and there's smoke everywhere. There's no smoke in here. I ran out of the juice. I'm sorry. No smoke machines in this room. I'm just kidding. But a lot of times when people walk into a room like this where you're immediately seen, it can be very intimidating. We want to do a better job of making what happens here on Sunday morning a welcoming place for people who are exploring faith or connection. And I, I know that we haven't always done the best of job at that, and I want to grow in that, and we want you to help do that as well. Secondly, almost every outreach thing we do in this church is centered around food. There's a common thread here, isn't there? We love feeding William Wells Brown. We love feeding Amachi. We love having these events um, where we serve in the community, and we want to make these opportunities to serve and to connect with others in our community the most welcoming, loving place possible. We want people to walk away saying, that rest, those restoration people, I just felt at home. Even though I wasn't home, I felt at home with them. And I believe that comes as we are intentional about this together. And so as we move forward in this year, in 2023, I, I encourage you to join this. I want to throw this up on the screen here. That, that QR code, you can actually scan that and sign up to help be a part of this welcome wagon team in whatever capacity you want it to be, whether that be here on Sunday mornings, which we need help with, sure, but also want to help Emily and Ashley with the meals and the chicken wings and things like that, or going out and serving the community. We want you to be a part of the welcome wagon. We want you to jump in this station wagon and let's go in the Jesus name and ride this thing around and welcome people wherever we go. Amen? Amen. Well, as Hannah comes now, I just want to close with this quote from an author, Sky Jathani, because I think it's, I love this. I read this this week, and it really summed up, I think, where we're heading together as a family as we learn to welcome one another in the coming year. Jathani says, our homes are to be hospitals, refuges of healing, radiating the light of heaven. And our dinner tables are to be operating tables the place where broken souls are made whole again. In our churches, people should find rest from their battle for acceptance and release from the lie that they are nothing more than the goods they possess. When we lower our defenses, when we remove our facades and begin to truly, to be truly present with one another, then the healing power of the gospel can begin its work. Jesus, you meet us where we are as we are. You do not meet us as the future version of ourself, as the one who's fixed and has everything together, but you meet us in our wandering. You meet us in our lostness that we are either aware or unaware with. And like a good shepherd, you pick us up.